Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus invokes the prophecy of Isaiah against those unable to grasp his teaching because of their ignorance of Scripture. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Perhaps that's why, after having cursed the fig tree, Jesus consigns the chief priests and the elders of the people to wallow in their ignorance. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 to 27. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 350 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the challenges of teaching wisdom specifically, I mean, you teach math, you teach history, you're teaching facts. When you teach wisdom, you are teaching facts, but those facts happen to come into conflict with the way your students are living. And when it's scriptural wisdom, It comes into conflict with the way everyone is living. And so when you preach it, everyone is put on the defense. Once you hear the message, you are on the defense. And as the old English saying goes, you're supposed to blame the message, not the messenger. (laughs) But people blame the messenger. Jesus just came into town and attack the fig tree, which is a metaphor for the remnant in Jerusalem, the people of Judea, Israel. He came in and cursed it, which is what the teacher does, because everyone is put under the curse of the law in Deuteronomy. That's Paul's point in his letter to the Galatians, because everyone falls short. Jesus delivered the message. The blind and the lame had no difficulty with that, because they know they fall short. But the ones who were cursed because they believe they are fine because they are living in the city and the grocery stores are full and they have what they need and the temple cult is running smoothly. Thank you very much, Jesus. Those are the ones who, having been scolded, instead of questioning their own behavior and examining their conscience before God, choose instead 
to question the authority of the messenger. And here we have the children crying in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, which upset the priests and the scribes. And then we have Jesus coming into the temple and teaching, and the chief priests and the elders were upset because they wondered, who are you to be teaching these things? And like you said, Father, you know, this pericope in the middle, which talks about the destruction of the remnant that doesn't produce fruit, sitting there, you know, by the temple, interestingly, and you have the lack of faith seen by every single person who can't do this seeming miracle. Jesus says, this is not a miracle. This is the fruit of faith, and therefore none of you have faith because you don't bear this fruit. Their zeal against Jesus is not because of their faith. It's because of their lack of faith. They can't hear the teaching. They can't hear Hosanna to the son of David because of their zeal. But here, zeal and faith are in opposition to each other. They are zealous. Oh, we can't have this guy being called the son of David. I mean, that's something very special and very particular. We don't want people just throwing around that phrase. They want to prevent this one from healing the sick and from teaching the teaching. This is what their zeal produces. No fruit is coming from Jerusalem because these people are so afraid of protecting everything that nothing can come of it. No teaching can come of it. No good deeds can come of it. Nothing can come of it because they are so careful to keep ownership of this power. And as a result, they have no faith. They have zeal, but no faith. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? The reason they are interested in who the authority comes from is because we project ourselves into the who. That is what idolatry is. The Pharisee is interested in who because the Pharisee in the story and the chief priest and the scribe and the elder in the story functions more like Pharaoh and or Caesar than as a teacher of God's instruction. Because if the who is God, according to them, then they can say, you're not of God. And then it just becomes a battle of egos, the way that denominations battle over who is right. But if the question is, what is the basis for your authority? Where does your authority come from? And the answer is from the instruction of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then it's no longer a battle of egos because there's a text. The authority comes from the text, and the preacher manifests and actualizes that authority for the community. What the religious teachers are doing here is manifesting their authority. And remember, we have to keep saying this, in their mind, the throne of David and the throne of Moses, the temple and the palace are one in the same. 
So religious authority in the classical world is also the authority of the state. And it was the same way for the Romans, which is why Julius Caesar could build his palace in the shape of a temple. What Jesus is doing is taking the question off of the who and redirecting it to the commandment. And if they knew the commandment, they wouldn't have to ask Jesus about this because they would recognize the content of his speech. He's not an innovator. He's repeating what they should already know. When you say, who are you to do this? You're assuming you have the right and ability to speak on behalf of the authority. If you have the right to judge what the person's teaching is, that means you have the authority. The important point when it comes to Scripture is that there is one authority that judges the teaching, and that's the written text. Jesus could just say, by what authority? Same authority, you're a chief priest. We're on the same page here, right? As the gatekeepers, they want to protect this thing that's behind them, which, you know, on its surface is not necessarily bad, but they do it for the wrong reason. They are not protecting the teaching. They are under the teaching. Jesus is under the teaching. When I talk about zeal, they're really zealous about themselves and their own power. I mean, when Jesus came in and they started calling him the son of David— They didn't actually respond to the healing, which I think they probably should have, but they didn't. Okay, fine. That's up to them. They responded to the children saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They're like, hey, 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 aren't you going to say something to them? Because they think, "Uh uh-oh, Jesus thinks too highly of himself. Jesus has got a big ego. We need to knock him down a notch. But what Jesus says is, what they said is what they said. Why did he do that? Because it's not for Jesus to judge. Chief priests, elders, go and look at the book. Judge according to that book. If what I'm doing is nonsense, then you ignore it. If what I'm saying is correct, then listen to it. But enough of the squabbles. We're not going to squabble over this. Their zeal to protect what they think they need to protect is a front for their ego that thinks that they're over the text, protecting the text, as opposed to under the text, serving the text. Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Now, the question is interesting because he's entrapping them, and Matthew will explain that shortly. But there's more going on here. He is turning the question on them. You're asking me because your premise is, who's in charge, me or you? But the real question is, what does Scripture say? Because we all know Scripture is in charge. The only way you can maintain your position in the community, is by suppressing Scripture. You have to make sure that people don't hear Scripture, because if they do hear Scripture, then they'll realize that they're under the authority of God through you, but they're not under you per se. It's that very subtle difference. You can't become a philosopher and say, oh, we're all under Scripture. I disagree. We're all under Scripture, 
as it is actualized by the people around us who put pressure on us, especially those above us. And they don't even have to be reading Scripture. Pontius Pilate was totally ignorant of Scripture. But because Jesus himself was under Scripture, the authority of Pontius Pilate actualized that pressure. And now they're in trouble because Jesus is actualizing the will of his Father through instruction. They're on very dangerous territory. They're trying to make it look like Jesus is the one following after a false god when they themselves make of themselves gods. And he's going to call them out on the carpet shortly. It's interesting the way that Jesus initiates this dialogue because he immediately takes it off of himself. He puts it onto John. Okay, let's stop talking about me for a minute. Let's talk about John, for example. How are you understanding John? How did you process John? Now, what's even more important is that they don't have a clear answer. I'm spoiling the end. They don't have a clear answer, which means they didn't process what John was doing. They didn't actually examine where they stood on John, which shows that clearly they didn't judge John according to Scripture. They are interested in protecting the temple because the only time that they see a threat is when the children call Jesus the son of David, Hosanna, granting him victory, and when he is teaching in the temple. That's when they're afraid. But when some guy in the hinterlands is teaching, they don't have an opinion, which is strange because it's just as revolutionary of a teaching, which makes you wonder, are they worried about the teaching or are they worried about the person? Obviously, they're worried about the person because they can't actually sort out his teaching. To be honest, what Jesus has been pushing is that they don't care about the teaching at all. They care about power. And this is where politics runs afoul. And this is where Abraham Lincoln was correct when he said that both sides pray to the same God and assume that God is on their side. They only want God to be on their side. They don't want to be on the side of God. They want God on their side. When this guy is against us and we're on the side of God, then he must be against God. And their fallacy is the first point when they assume that they're on God's side. We have to remember that we are not to assume that we're on God's side. We hope that we serve this gospel, but we have to understand that we have no faith. We are not able to curse fig trees and move mountains. We do not have that faith. It's interesting that at the heart of this discussion, Richard, is your observation that they are not only protecting themselves, but protecting the temple. And their interest in the identity behind the authority is, in a way, setting themselves up in opposition to that who, because the who is the father of Jesus. But because they're not interested in what is written, but in the who that they imagine, they are projecting themselves into that who. We've been talking a lot lately about the question of parish health, which is an eternal obsession of modern Christians. And what's problematic about the discussion about parish health is that the temple cult in Jerusalem was quite healthy. They managed to do just fine for themselves under the Roman oppression. They managed to survive. Things were going well. 
there's no shortage of crowds associated with their system in Jerusalem. And Jesus came to destroy it by delivering the instruction in Matthew chapter 21. In a modern setting, there's so much pressure on the pastor, just like there's pressure on teachers in Western culture to replace the family, there's pressure on pastors in Western culture to replace community in a society without community. Dr. King felt that pressure. He used to talk about neighborhoods versus brotherhoods because brotherhood is in decline in the West. Let's not lie to ourselves. So in that setting, is the job of the Pharisee to build Jerusalem and to make it thrive? Or is the job of the Pharisee to deliver the message to Jerusalem so that when they are judged, they have no excuse? It's the latter, but the latter doesn't look good on a balance sheet. That's the real difficulty, friends. It's that we can't help but think of this the way the Pharisees think of it, as a human enterprise. And it's never going to go away from that because that's what people are. But the beauty of it all is that at the end of the day, if the pastor delivers the message correctly, his job is done, even if everything falls apart. This is where the rulers in Jerusalem fall short, because as you said, Richard, I agree with you. They're thinking about what this means for the enterprise of the temple that he's ruffling feathers. They're not thinking about the content of the message and whether or not feathers should be ruffled. And to heck with the rest. It's a risky proposition. When you are in the company of the one who preaches the message of the Father, you are in the company of people who are dangerous for your human enterprise. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet." They're worried about what Jesus is going to say to them. They're seeing it as a match of egos. Well, if we say this, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe? Okay, then we look stupid. And then he says, well, we fear the people. So if we say something against the people, then we're going to look stupid. Shoot, we're going to look stupid either way. But this is the problem. They're looking to themselves as the reference point. They don't say, if Jesus says this, then we know that Scripture says that. But if he says the other thing, then Scripture says something else. How do we reason with Scripture on this? No, they look at themselves at the reference point. Which is going to make us look less stupid? Which is going to shame us the least? Which is going to allow us to save face? They want to save face, they want to save power, and they don't want to look stupid. And that is the root of this zeal that they hold zeal in themselves, zeal in their power, zeal in their intelligence, and zeal in their position in this temple cult, this temple system. This is why they're not worthy of compassion, they're worthy of the curse in the previous passage. We talked about the expiration date on grace. The job of the pastor, the teacher, the job of the one delivering the message here is not to kowtow to people who are resistant. It's to deliver the message. 
And he knows on the basis of their premise that they're not talking about the message, they're not interested in the message, and they're not going to listen. So in keeping with Jeremiah and Isaiah and Exodus, he is simply hardening Pharaoh's heart, closing Israel's ears, and blinding them so that seeing they won't see and hearing they can't hear, and they are cursed. That's the teaching of the fig tree because they're not going to repent. So why should he even enter into conversation? He asks them a question that consigns them to the ignorance and darkness of their empty premise, which is themselves. And he's going to move on and take care of those who are in such a position that they realize that they are of no value in and of themselves. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And this is a trick response. Because the authority by which he does these things is out in the open, in the content of what John taught in the wilderness. He's now explaining to them out in the open that they have not repented. They didn't bear fruit worthy of repentance. So he cursed them. The tree was barren. This is what's going on in Matthew. It's too late. There's no counseling session to help them realize they're wrong. The Lord of the harvest came. The tree was barren because they didn't listen to John. And the content of John is the authority on which Jesus is preaching. But they're still interested in the who. Because when they look in the mirror, they see the God of Abraham. That's how they actualize their understanding of their religion. Self-deification. By trying to deify themselves they ironically disqualify themselves from any authority they have to teach. Because when Jesus asks them a simple question, okay, here's a situation. Analyze it according to Scripture. They're like, hmm, we don't know. How can I help you then? (laughs) What do you want me to do? It's like, like, Father, I have an issue. Well, what does Jesus say about it? I don't know. I haven't read the Bible, Father. (laughs) Yep. And you're the one telling me who are you to teach the Bible. And then I ask you a simple question. And you say, I mean, they say, we don't know. That is the best answer they could come up with. They wanted to save face, and the way they did it is say, we don't know? I mean, they are the chief priests and the elders. According to Hosea 4, their main job is not processing sacrifices. It's teaching And if Jesus asked them a very simple question about how Scripture functions in the situation of John the Baptist and his baptism, and they can't answer, who are they to judge? Not because of some authority that they lack, but because they don't even know the reference point. You know, and I see this happen so much. People are so careful to protect their religion or to protect their ideology. And you ask a simple question about how they are analyzing the situation, and they can't 
They can't. They don't have data. They don't have reasoning. They don't have a basis other than it feels bad. And this is why discourse is so poor is because when both sides have given up any authority to actually come down and say something based on an agreed set of facts or on an agreed premise, you can't discuss anymore. Why are they not able to produce fruit? Why are they afraid of someone who is called the son of David in their temple? Why are they afraid of somebody teaching in their temple? Because they don't know. In my comment on verse 27, I was looking back to verse 14, but also ahead to verse 32, which we'll cover next week. Because both of those passages deal with the ones who are in a position of weakness or are outcast because of their station in society. That is not a credit to them. Their weakness, their position as outcasts doesn't make them better than the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, but it puts them in a better position because they don't live in a world where the grocery stores are full and they're tucked in safe and sound in Jerusalem. Their disadvantage becomes an advantage because they see that Jerusalem is a lie. If you are the son of a Palestinian refugee and you grow up watching news in the U.S. and everyone keeps talking about civil rights, yet you recognize the hypocrisy in the treatment of the peoples of the Middle East, it opens your eyes to the dysfunction of civil society. It's just a fact. I mean, Everyone who is on the outside of the mainstream understands this, and that's part of the crisis in the U.S., is that the propaganda is now unraveling before everyone's eyes, and everyone is vying to replace the old propaganda with a new narrative. It's dangerous because that's when there are major societal shifts. That's when violence in a desire to manifest human authority typically surfaces. So we have to be vigilant. But we have to be mindful of that from the position of the tax collector, the prostitute, the blind, the maimed, and the lame, not from the position of someone who's fighting over the center of authority in the temple. This is what I'm trying to say. Everybody's fighting over the position of authority instead of giving the authority to wisdom. And that's the only way out. That's the only way out. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.